continue looking at Matthew chapter 24, emphasizing Christ's coming to earth will be unmistakable. Again, the occasion for Christ's teaching concerning his return and the end of the age was his teaching regarding the destruction of the temple. Matthew 24, 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The disciples, having heard that the temple would be destroyed, had a question or questions for Jesus. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So how are we to understand the disciples' question? This is all review. Were they asking about one event, two events, or three events? Matthew 24, 3. He said on the, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. So what are the three events? They are the destruction of the temple, Christ's coming, and then the end of the age. All these events are closely connected. The question is, how closely connected are they in time? In other words, we have a sequence. These three events happening, but and they happen in that order, but how quickly do they come upon each other? The significance, purpose, or aim of Jesus' response was to keep his disciples from being led astray by false Christs and prophets that arise in association with these events. Key verse, Matthew 24, 4, Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. The need would be that many people will come declaring that they are the Christ. Verse 5, For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And then again in verse 24, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead you astray. Those two passages are talking about two different events. But the same theme is, I'm telling you these things so that you will not be led astray. So that you will not follow these false Christs. I can't emphasize enough that that's the purpose of this particular portion of Scripture. Not to figure out every iota and every detail. It's to give us the big picture. And the big picture is that when Christ returns, it's going to be unmistakable. We will unpack that for you as we go on. The result. Many will be led astray to follow these false Christs. Verse 5, and they will lead many astray. Verse 24, if possible... Well, read the whole verse. Verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray. And then these words, if possible, even the elect, they are going to be so convincing that they are going to lead everyone astray. It is only the elect that are not going to be led astray. If possible, but it's not possible. The disciples... Understand and believe that Jesus is the true Christ. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming, and of the end of the age? 
Before the Lord comes, the abomination of desolation will take place. Matthew 24, 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now what I've decided to do is um, I'm going to be quoting John MacArthur at pretty much length. And the reason I'm doing that is for a number of reasons. Uh, First, he's a well-respected Bible uh, teacher. I think most of you have a high regard for John MacArthur. Secondly, because he says things pretty simply and succinctly. And thirdly, because he's of a different persuasion than I am, but I'm emphasizing where we're in agreement. And I just want to show that we're in agreement because of uh, where uh, he is. And so he says this, the prophet Daniel referred to the abomination of desolation three times, 9.27, and 12.11. And he says this, the bolding is mine. Virtually every Bible scholar, no matter what his views on eschatology, eschatology is the study of the end times, no matter what his views on eschatology, identifies that abomination as the sacrilege committed by Antiochus IV, the Syrian king who ruled Palestine from 175 to 165 B.C. as the surrogate of the Greek Empire. That is a true statement, and that is a statement you need to keep in mind. All right? There's universal agreement on that. We'll get to some stuff where there's not universal agreement, but there's universal agreement on that. I continue to read. He took to himself the title Theos Epiphanes, which means manifest God, but his enemies nicknamed him uh, uh, Epimanes, which means madman or the insane one. Ironically, when he died in 163, he was totally insane. Outraged to the point of madness because of his military defeats by the Jewish rebel Judas Maccabeus. The text of Daniel 11, 21 to 35, perfectly describes the rule of Antiochus, who gained his throne by intrigue, verse 21, made numerous excursions into Egypt, verses 24 to 27, broke his covenant with Israel, verse 28, and desecrated the temple in Jerusalem, verse 31. The apocryphal books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees vividly portray the time of Antiochus and the Jews zealous resistance to his brutal and sacrilegious tyranny. He slaughtered countless thousands of Jewish men, sold many of their wives and children into slavery, and tried to completely obliterate the Jewish religion. He desecrated the temple by sacrificing a pig, the most ceremonially unclean of all animals, on the altar, and forcing the priest to eat his flesh. He then set up the temple, an idol of Zeus, the pagan deity he fancied himself as manifesting. Universal agreement on that. It is so historically accurate, it's virtually undeniable. But then he says this, that horrible defilement by Antiochus was a preview of their even greater abomination of desolation to be committed by the Antichrist in the end time. We get into now what is referred to in some circles as double fulfillment of prophecies. That is, there is a prophecy that's made. There's a recognition that that is fulfilled. 
And then there's the idea that that's just a forerunner of yet another prophecy to be fulfilled, which is in keeping with the first prophecy. Okay. In my estimation, when you get into double prophecies, you're getting into pretty uh, unsolid ground. Okay. When we understand it's fulfilled, then to say, well, it's going to be fulfilled again, but in a slightly different fashion, well, you can work that out for yourself. But <clears throat> I'm just saying that makes a little difficulty to say that that's fulfilled, but this is also talking about another event. Quoting again from MacArthur, Daniel had predicted 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgressions, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. That's a quotation of Daniel 9.24 by MacArthur. Seventy weeks is literally seventy-sevens and refers to years, CF 9.2. In other words, 490 years would transpire before the Messiah would return to establish his eternal kingdom of righteousness. As Daniel explained in the following verse, that measurement would begin at the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. The decree issued by King Artaxerxes in 445 B.C., see Nehemiah 2, 5-6, the prophet also explained that seven weeks and 62 weeks, that is 69 weeks or 483 years, I know I'm going through this fast, but would pass until Messiah the Prince, Daniel 9.25. It has been calculated that exactly 483 years elapsed from the decree of Artaxerxes until Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem when he was acclaimed Messiah and King by the multitude. For detailed explanation of those dates, see Robert Anderson's The Coming Prince, Grand Rapids, Craigle, 1954, and Harold Honer's Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. This is still quoted by MacArthur. And now the bold, this is my bolding, these are MacArthur's words. After that time, and before the 70th and final week of years, the Messiah would be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, Daniel 9.26. That is a picture of Jesus' crucifixion and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. I say amen to that. Okay, That's, again, pretty much universal understanding of this particular passage. Daniel predicted that this temple was going to be destroyed. He predicted with such accuracy that he gave the time from the <clears throat> decree that the temple should be rebuilt to the time in which it's going to be desolated. There is universal, virtually universal agreement on all of that. A. Thus it is clear that the destruction of the temple that is being referred to in Matthew 24, 15 is the destruction that takes place in 70 A.D. We're all on the same page. What is not so clear is whether verses 16 to 20 are speaking of the time period surrounding the events in 70 A.D. or events future to us. John MacArthur takes the events in verses 16 to 20 as future to us. And I quote, As mentioned previously, the abomination of desolation will precipitate 
the first series of dangers and catastrophes that Jesus compared to birth pains when the Antichrist desecrates the restored Jerusalem temple. Okay, so he's saying that what is being described here is the temple's been destroyed. Now, the temple's going to be rebuilt, and he's talking about the rebuilt temple. You with me? Although the passage doesn't say the temple's going to be rebuilt. It talks about its destruction, but it doesn't talk about its rebuilding. Okay, You've got to read that into it. You've got to supply that. Just moving on. When the Antichrist desecrates the restored Jerusalem temple and demands that all world worship him as God, the second three and a half years of the tribulation called the Great Tribulation will begin. Then Jesus said that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. That statement is warning of the severity of the Holocaust to come and an exhortation to flee from it. And then I cite where this all comes from, John MacArthur, in his commentary on Matthew, Matthew 24 to 28. He's got three volumes or four volumes on on Matthew. And... uh, from his New Testament com- commentary, from, the New, uh, from MacArthur's New Testament commentary se- series, and then uh, the location. Number two, it could be very possible that verses 16 to 20 are speaking of the events taking place in 70 AD. Then, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, let the one who is on the housetop not go, go down to take what is in his house, and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak, and alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days. I'm not about to fight over are verses 16 to 19 historical or are they future to us? Okay. Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, talks about the siege, talks about the people seeing it to come. A big issue, should people flee the city or stay in the city? whether they were viewed as traitors by leaving or should they stay, et cetera, et cetera. It's fascinating stuff. If you ask me, I tend to think verses 16 to 19 are still back talking about 70 AD. Again, it's not worth fighting over. Three, either way, the events starting at verse 21 referred to as Great Tribulation are definitely future to us. Okay? That period, 21, excuse me, Matthew 24, starting at verse 21, is future to us. For then, there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world unto now, no, and never will be. All right? So it's talking about a great tribulation. Great because it is unlike any tribulation up until that point. Last week, we looked at the fact that you are going to experience tribulation. Okay? We're going to experience hardship. That is not unique to any particular period of time of history. There's always been tribulation. There's always been difficulty. But the Bible predicts that there will be a time in which that tribulation is unlike any other tribulation that has been experienced up until that point. It is a great tribulation. As we we think about these words, 
the thens in these passages are difficult to interpret, okay? Because there's two ways that you can read a then. That is, you can read a then as at that time. So Matthew 24, verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Okay, that's why I think that that's historical. It's saying at that time, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, etc. You get to verse 21, it says, for then there will be great tribulation. I think the then there is talking about a series of events. Okay, so we have this destruction of Jerusalem. What comes next? And then there will be great tribulation. As I could say, I'm going to go to the store, and then after I go to the store, I'm going to have dinner, then after I have dinner, I'm going to do this, that. doesn't say whether or not there's time in between, doesn't say how much time, it's just a series of events. Then this happens, then that happens, then this happens, then that happens, all right? It's clear in verse 21, it's future and talking about the next event in the series. So the next event in the series, after the destruction of the temple, is this great tribulation. Verse 22, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. The second question is, what is meant by the days being cut short? John MacArthur understands the days are going to be cut short in the sense that 24-hour days are going to be shortened. There's going to be less light than normal, so that there will be less daylight for persecution. Well, I think that persecution can happen during the nighttime and not during, just during the daytime. You, you think of uh, World War II, you think of Nazi Germany, and you think of those sirens coming in the middle of the night. They took people away in the middle of the night, not during the daytime, uh, because they tried to do it surreptitiously. I don't think cutting short means that there's less daylight. I take cutting short to mean that the number of days are going to be lessened. I think that's consistent with saying that we are to hasten the coming of the Lord, that somehow we're going to speed it up. So if that's the case, okay, then this second half of the tribulation period may not be a full three and a half years. Those days might be cut short. It might be less than the three and a half years. Take it for what it's worth. Think about it. Again, not worth fighting about. Number two, people are not to be misled by false Christs that will rise on the scene. That is the, the most important point of all of this. Matthew 24, 23. Then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. Why does he say that? First, false Christs will arise that will be very persuasive and lead all astray except for the elect. They'll be very persuasive. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders. They are going to do incredible miracles. 
incredible miracles. Number two, they will lead astray all except the elect. So as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But everybody else is going to be led astray. The elect are not to follow those false Christs. The elect are warned not to follow the false Christ. Matthew 24, 25. See, I've told you beforehand. I'm letting you know before this happens that these false Christs are going to arise and they're going to do incredible miracles. I'm telling you before it happens so that you're not surprised. So, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. If people say to you that Christ is over there, he's in the wilderness, he's in the desert. If they say, Christ is in this room, go see Christ, don't you believe it. Don't you believe it. I remember as a teen that there was a thought going around, I heard it, that Christ had appeared to a number of people in the back seat of a car. Well, Christ isn't going to come in the back seat of a car. He's not coming in the wilderness. He's not coming in a room. Christ's return to earth will not be obscure or an isolated event. Verse 27. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Okay, It's going to be like lightning filling the sky. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's a picture of what takes place in the heavens. You know, there's a dead corpse down here, and there's the vultures flying around up there. You may not be able to see the dead corpse, but you can see the vultures. The idea is, you are going to see this. Three, Christ's return to earth will be accompanied by an incredible display of great power and great glory that the whole earth will witness. Verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days. The first clear time reference in our passage. After the tribulation of those days. And the first clear time reference that it happens immediately. No time lag. As soon as the tribulation has ended, Christ will return. Verse 29, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Everyone is going to see Christ descending out of heaven in the clouds in an incredible display of power and authority as 
The sun is darkened as all of these cataclysmic events are taking place. It's going to be unmistakable. It's nothing like we have ever seen in the past. That's how Christ is going to come. So says this passage. Matthew 24, 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather together his elect from four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. I'm going to pick up next week at that point and continue to work through this text as to its significance and what it means for us. But tonight, here are the concluding thoughts. First, in the future there will be many false Christs. B, they will be able to perform miracles and be very deceptive. Many will follow the false Christ. The elect are not to believe the reports that Christ has arrived and go to some place to see or hear from him. Why? For when Christ comes to earth, it will be unmistakable. He isn't going to just appear out of nowhere. All people will see the event. He will appear in the heavens. His return will be accompanied with cataclysmic events. His return will be accompanied by display of great power and great glory. All will know it when they see it. That is literally all will know it when they see it, including the non-elect. And that's why they are going to call for the mountains to fall upon them because it's clear Christ is coming to this earth. So, don't worry about not knowing when Christ is here. When Christ is here, We're going to know it. And until there is this incredible cataclysmic display which everyone on earth can see and recognize, until that happens, just understand that every person who claims to be Christ is a liar. Every prophet that is claiming to be speaking for Christ that he is here is a liar. No matter what miracles they can do, no matter what signs they can perform, they're a liar. Because when Christ comes, it will be unmistakable. That's Matthew 24, that next session. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, we delight in the thought of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, O God, that... You would uh, help us to be faithful for as long as you give us life and breath. Uh, We don't know when that period of time is going to take place in relationship to our own lives, but we know there are going to be an elect people that are alive and present at the time in which you come. Uh, Lord, uh, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to understand and know the scriptures at least to the extent that we would be fully convinced that when Christ comes, we'll know it. We thank you for that great truth in Jesus' name.
Amen. Thank you. And